0: Celeste and this is my story. I grew up in a spiritually dead home. My mom was a Christian but she had kind of lost her path um, during my childhood and as far as I know my dad wasn't a believer while I was growing up. I went to church occasionally but had really never heard about the whole relationship with Christ thing. I knew the stories but um, and I believed all the stories but I thought that Christ died for you. He didn't die for me. I knew that God loved people and I just wasn't one of them and at an early age I really felt that I had been predestined to go to hell and that no matter what I did I couldn't earn God's love and that I was going to hell. Um, Instead of seeking out, seeking acceptance from God I sought it through other people. became sexually active in middle school and started seeking worth and joy in men primarily but also in drugs and alcohol and when I got to high school, that escalated, but it was still something that no one could really see. I was still able to like keep it hidden and cover it up with good grades and extracurricular activities and just being an all-around good student. But when I went to college, my sense of hopelessness and being lost was completely apparent. And I was this like tornado of destruction and ruining all of the relationships that I had. I started doing harder drugs and started shoplifting a lot and um, was just really ruining everything that was in my life. And through all of this, my sister and her husband were really the people that still loved me despite how ugly my life had become and how many mistakes I was making. And they really just came up behind me and continually pointed me to Christ and continually had these hard conversations of, do you know who Christ is? Do you know that he died on a cross for you? And I knew who he was, but I had built up these walls that, sure, yeah, he died, but I'm not someone that he died for. Like, I have all these mistakes in my past that I've done and he's not gonna forgive me for those. My brother-in-law's dad brought me to Hope. Hope wasn't a place or a church like any other church that I had been to. And I just felt accepted and felt that it was through the messiness that God's grace really shone and that hope is good at showing that. Um, And I continually just kept hearing this message of grace and grace and grace and grace and that despite all of the mistakes that people make, God still loves you and he's much bigger than those mistakes. I ended up joining a small group of young women And it was through that that I was really challenged to grow and started to learn more and being held accountable for things that I was doing. I was dating um, a guy at the time who is now my husband and we had been dating for about a year and we made the decision to stop having sex before marriage. And it was through that, submitting that to Christ and being obedient that God really worked in my life and showed me that I am worthy and that I am loved and that I am, A bride of Christ and he started just really working in my life and showing me um, through my obedience that I am his child and that he cares for me so it's through this time that I really that God was really able to restore a lot of relationships that I had either destroyed or that had just been dysfunctional since day one Um, and seeing how God can use someone's mistakes and their messiness and things that we find shame in has really been one of the most amazing parts of my journey because he has been able to take something so shameful and guilt-ridden and turned it into something for his glory i had put a label on myself and what god could do with my life and but god is so much bigger than my mistakes and he is able to use my mistakes and my messiness and my muck for his glory and i'm just so thankful that i don't have to do it on my own
1: You know, just like you, there are days I get very frustrated in my job, but when I hear stories like that, it reminds me of why I do what I do, and it should remind us this is why we serve, and this is why we give, this is why we invite. You know, we're in this series about you at work, and we're talking about we spend a majority of our time, a good portion of our life working, but when you think about it, God is at work all the time. God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always behind the scenes doing something and working in our lives. By the way, I think that's one of the, maybe the best reasons for working so hard to invite people to be at a church service on Easter or a weekend where 70% of them will come if they're just invited because there's a whole lot of people out there that need to connect with God just the way she connected with God. And here's the thing, when you invite someone on Easter, you have no idea what's going to happen if they actually show up. You know, have no idea how God might connect with them. Maybe it's through the words of a song. Maybe it's through something in the message. Maybe it's someone they meet out in the lobby or out in the parking lot. But God begins to go to work behind the scenes, and we hear these amazing stories of life change. And I would just really encourage you, if you haven't invited anyone yet, think about the people in your life who need to have a story like that one day, how God showed up and absolutely changed Their life. Now we're in the sixth and last week of our series, You at Work. And we've discovered over the past six weeks, and it seems like an eternity ago we started this thing, right? But over the last six weeks, what we discovered is that God is actually interested in our work. In fact, if you were here the very first week, You remember the verse that we looked at, Paul wrote to a small church in Colossae and the letter became known as the book of Colossians, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. In other words, we discovered that we're to approach our jobs every day with all of our heart as if Jesus Christ is our boss. We also learned that how we do our job is much more important to God than what our job, our title, our position actually is. Now, this weekend, I want to wrap up our series by addressing this question. What do you do when you're asked to do something at work that goes against biblical principles? You're asked to do something that violates uh, your values or your ethics. For example, as a Christian, uh, what do you do at work when your boss asks you to do something that you know is dishonest? Or you're asked to sign a document that you know is not accurate? Or you have to present a product in a less than truthful way? Or, Or you're asked to promise more than you know you can deliver? Or you're asked to prepare a report that hides all the negative things, but yet it highlights all the positives. When you're a Christian, and you're supposed to work with all your heart as if Jesus Christ is your boss, how in the world do you handle those situations? you got to understand, this is a real issue, and this is an important issue, because a lot of you here this weekend, you would have to admit, you work in an industry where the bottom line is, is far more important than ethics. And if that describes you this weekend, this, this is probably what you've been thinking throughout the series. You've been coming, you've been listening every week, and you've been walking out and getting in the car, and this is what your thought has been. This stuff may work in church world, but this stuff doesn't work in the real world. I mean, you're thinking, unlike church, I have to worry about things like the economy and competition and margins, and, and those, have a, those things just have a way of cutting into my ability to always do the right thing some of you walked out of here thinking if I try to apply these principles at work if I try to live up my Christian values at work I might as well just quit now and not even wait to get fired the problem is this when you begin to think that way the temptation is to divorce your personal convictions from your professional convictions in other words, you go to church and you live a certain way, you live a certain way at home, you live a certain way in your small group, you live a certain way around your Christian friends, you, you try to be honest, you're moral, you, you, you try to always be truthful, you try to always do the right thing, but then you operate by a different standard, a different set of standards Monday through Friday when you go back into the marketplace. And let me just say, if that describes you this weekend, my guess is it probably wasn't always like that for you. That probably wasn't always the case. In fact, you can probably remember a time when you first got into the marketplace, when you got your first job, when living a double standard really, really bothered you. I mean, if you were put in a situation where you had to make a decision or do something that went against your values, went against your ethics, I mean, you felt really guilty. At those times, you were so sensitive and your conscience and your heart was so sensitive that you would ask God to forgive you. You even thought about quitting. You probably had conversations with your spouse or your close friends that said, listen, I can make this anywhere. Why do I stay in a job? Why would I ever stay in a job where I have to compromise what I really believe? But you stayed in the job. And time has gone by. And now you have seniority. And now you make a lot of money. And what's happened is, if you look back over time, you've learned how to rationalize your options. Because now you feel trapped. Now you feel like there just aren't any other options. I mean, you don't want to have to make a decision based on your Christian values. You don't want to move out of that nice house in the nice neighborhood where your family lives. You don't want to make a decision that's going to cause your wife not to be able to drive the kind of car she's accustomed to driving. You want your kids to stay in the private school. You want the nice vacations. You want the beach house. You want to make sure you can pay the dues at the country club. You don't want to give up any of those things. So you feel trapped. You feel like you're between a rock and a hard place because you know if you were to go out of here and to begin to implement some of the things that we've learned in this series, implement your Christian values at work, there's a real strong possibility that life as you know it may have to change but you got to understand when you fall into that trap even though you're a Christian even though you love God without realizing it this is what happens you become an idol worshiper and there are three idols in your life basically that you end up bowing down to and worshiping the first one is security after all you got to pay the mortgage you got to pay the school tuition you got to keep up the country club dues you want to retire one day So this quest for security takes precedence over obedience to God and understand when that happens, security becomes an idol in your life and you begin to worship security. Another one maybe is recognition. I mean, you've worked hard. You've got a reputation to keep up. You've spent years building your company. You've spent years climbing up the ladder. And if you were to show up now and interject your Christian values into work, you may lose your recognition. And so your reputation becomes the God of your life. It becomes the idol that you bow down to. It becomes the filter through which you make all your decisions at work. I think a third idol is progress. I mean, it's just something in all of us. It's the American dream. You want to go further. You want to climb higher, right? And so this idea of making the decision that may cause you to move back down the ladder or lose ground, I mean, it just makes you cringe. Because everything you've been taught from your parents, from school, from your education. It's about making progress. It's about moving up the chart. I brought my little chart out here tonight. I know you're excited this weekend. Let me show you what I'm talking about. You know you go to work and and finally you get your first job. You're in a cubicle. You don't even have a phone. But at least you're employed, right? And then you get a promotion. You got a phone. You know what I'm saying? And then after a while they move you into an office. And you have a phone. And then one day, they move you to another office and now you have an assistant. And then all of a sudden, you get your first bonus and that's a big step up. And you realize life is going to be really, really good. And then after that, maybe they move you up and, uh, and, and, you, and you get some stock options. And life is getting better and better. And then they finally move you up to the 16th floor where all the big muckety-mucks are. And you got a corner office. Now realize, when you get here, this is where dreams live, okay? When you get there... You're living in your dream house. When you get there, you're driving the car of your dreams. When you get right there, you're taking your dream vacations. Everybody wants to be there. And this idea of then showing up at work and finding yourself in a situation where your company is asking you to do one thing, but you know that God would expect you to do something different. If the idea means that going with God means that you're going to have to do this, it's almost impossible to think about. In fact, if you go with God, you might actually do do this. And we have the hardest time even comprehending starting life all over again. I I, I haven't started life all over again, but but I understand kind of what you're thinking when you go back down the ladder. Um, A few months ago, Laura and I began to pray about, uh, I had this beautiful Mustang. I told you guys about it. Convertible, six-speed GT, all the bells and whistles, fancy wheels. It sits in my garage 90% of the time. So Laura began to pray without telling me she was praying, and then God began to speak to me. And one day I went home, I said, I think I need to sell the Mustang. She said, oh, thank you, God, I was praying. I'm like, why didn't you just tell me? Because she said, well, sometimes you listen to God, you don't listen to me, right? So we put the Mustang up for sale, and sure enough, somebody sold, I sold the Mustang, and, uh, I, and somebody actually gave me what I asked for. They didn't even count her. But see, so you got to understand the Mustang, it was so cool. We were so close. The car understood me. I'm telling you, when I approached the car, the seat automatically adjusts itself for me. I could talk to my car and it would talk back. I would say, I want to call Laura. Calling Laura. What's showing at Beaver Creek Cinemas? It would pull it up on the screen and tell me. What's the weather radar? Pull it up and show me. I want, it, I want it to be 68 degrees in the car. It would put my car at 68 degrees. Put it on this station. It would put it on that station. Me and my car, we were in a relationship. you got to understand, this, I didn't need a small group. I had this thing going with my car. You see what I'm saying? So I sold it. I bought a 13-year-old pickup with over 100,000 miles. I have to adjust my own seat. Change my own radio station. If I want to call Laura, I got to dial it myself. I'm, t- I'm dealing with some tough first world issues right now in my life. So I understand what it is to, go, to be up here living the dream and then have to back back down the literal, I mean, I, I understand. You love God, I get that. You love Jesus, you love your family. But when push comes to shove, it's really hard to make decisions that might take you back down the ladder, Right? Because when we get up here, it's all about security. It's all about recognition. It's all about progress. And understand, we live in a world, we live in a culture that reinforces that every day. But here's the real danger. As a Christian, when you say no to what's right and you compromise your integrity for the sake of things like security or recognition or progress, understand you lose the opportunity to discover and experience what God might have done if you would have done the right thing. You lose the opportunity of knowing that God was ready to show up, He was ready to intervene in a tangible way in your life. You see, when your faith and God's faithfulness intersect, when they collide, God shows up in unmistakable ways. But when you as a Christian refuse to exercise faith, you refuse to be obedient and trust God for the outcome, you miss that and you live the rest of your life wondering, what in the world did God have for me? What would have happened if I would have made the right choice, if I would have done the right thing? Here's the problem. You will never know. You'll never know because you never took the risk and obeyed God. You went with what was secure. You went with what was safe. Now I want to show you an example of this in the life of one of my favorite characters in the Bible. His name is Daniel. If you have your Bible, turn over to Daniel chapter 1 while you're turning. Let me bring you up to speed. And uh, I don't have to do this a lot because a few weeks ago Donnie Peters actually spoke out of uh, Daniel chapter 1. So I want to get a little background, then we're going to move over to Daniel chapter 6. But when you get to daniel chapter one daniel this young man he's about 15 16 years old he's living in jerusalem with his family and his friends when king nebuchadnezzar of babylon uh uh, comes in and 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 he kind of just conquers the city in 586 bc and then after defeating jerusalem sacking jerusalem uh, king nebuchadnezzar he picks some of the brightest young men there and he decides he's going to take them back with him to Babylon. Now understand, Daniel's one of the men that is taken back into captivity. So Daniel, as we set up chapter 1, he's now 800 miles from home. He's in a culture, a perverted culture, a decadent culture. Everything's totally unfamiliar to him. And and King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a plan to train these young men to be a part of his government, to press and win over these guys. It says in verse 5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Donnie talked about this. But immediately Donnie Do I look that bad? Oh, okay, there. Immediately, Daniel has a problem. Because Daniel knew, wait a second, if I'm being served the best fruit from the king's table, this is also food that was first offered up to idols. And he knew from his Jewish upbringing that this violated everything he was raised. It violated the covenant that he had with God. So all of a sudden, you got to understand, Daniel is dropped into this free-thinking, decadent society. He's going to be taught their philosophy. He's going to be taught their literature. He's going to be taught their language. In fact, he is going to go through this complete, intense, brainwashing experience. They're going to do everything they can to drain out all of his traditional thinking, all of his upbringing, and this is going to be replaced with a whole new set of thinking, a whole new set of values. Now, this is the situation we find ourselves in. But I want you to notice this verse in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. Notice Daniel's decision. It says, Daniel resolved. And that word there in the Hebrew means he purposed in his heart. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And you'll notice he resolved his past tense. In other words, this was a decision that Daniel made ahead of time. And his decision was this. Regardless of what I face, I am not going to disobey God. Regardless of what I face in life, I am going to do the right thing. Regardless of what culture is telling me. Regardless of what my friends do. I don't care. I'm going to do the right thing. And let me just say, if you're a middle schooler this weekend or you're a high schooler or you're a college student this weekend, if you could understand this principle at your age right now, you're going to save yourself a boatload of grief in life. You are surrounded by lots of adults this weekend who who, who are thinking this. I wish I would have resolved at a young age, 15, 16 years old, that I was going to be obedient to God regardless. But that's what Daniel did. That's the decision he made. And I think God looked down from heaven. He looked at Daniel and he said, I like this kid. This is a guy who's going to do great things. And it wasn't because of everything that Daniel had going for him on the outside. It was because Daniel had made up his mind. He was going to be obedient to God. He was going to do the right thing no matter what. Now that sets us up for the scene that we're going to look at in chapter 6 if you'll flip over there. By the time you get to chapter 6, King Nebuchadnezzar has died. There's a new king, King Darius. And Daniel, because of his skill, his talent, his hard work, his integrity, he has been promoted throughout the kingdom to the role of commissioner. That meant that he was in charge of the people who collected taxes for the kingdom. And Daniel's primary job was to make sure that the amount of taxes that had been collected were accurately reported back to the king. So you get to chapter 6, verse 3, and it tells us that Daniel had distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps. That's, they were the collectors, the tax collectors, by his exceptional qualities. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. That basically means that Daniel's going to be the number two guy in the most powerful kingdom in the known world at that time. In other words, Daniel's right up here. He's at the top of the chart. He is living the dream. But notice verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of governmental affairs, but they were unable to do so. In other words, they didn't like the fact that this outsider, they didn't like the fact that this foreigner was going to come in Go up through, grow up through the kingdom, have all of this power. So they want to get some dirt on Daniel. They want to bring him down. So they begin to tell him. They begin to check his files. They're watching every move he makes. But if you read verse 4, they couldn't find anything that he was doing wrong. They couldn't find an unpaid parking ticket. No evidence of stolen office supplies, right? No behind-the-scenes hanky-panky with, with some little hottie from the secretarial pool. None of that stuff they could find on Daniel. So finally these guys come to the conclusion in verse 5, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the laws of God. And in these guys' mind, the little bing light bulb went off, right? So they come up with a plan and they go see the king in verse 7. It says, the royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors and governors... Have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except you, O oh king, shall be thrown in the lion's den. we got to make an example out of these people. It will be the law of the Medes and Persians. You've heard about it, right? So verse 9, King Darius put the decree in the writing. He made it a law. Now, you got to understand this. This was King Darius' way of saying to all the people of the kingdom, including Daniel, I control your life. Your life is in my hands. I own you. You forget your own gods. If you don't look to me for security, if you don't look to me for your future, it is over for you. Now, you got to understand, as we're, as, as, we're, as we're going through this story, this is exactly where we get trapped in our jobs and in our careers. For example, maybe your boss wants you to sign something that's not accurate. And your very first reaction is this. If I don't sign this, I could lose my job. I could be out of work. I could be unemployed. Then who's going to pay the mortgage? Then who's going to pay the car payments? Then who's going to pay the college tuition? Then who's going to pay the country club dues? Then who's going to pay for my vacations? How will I ever retire? In other words, if I don't do what everybody else is willing to do, then what's gonna to happen to me? And your boss, your company is basically saying, Your future is in my hands. I control the outcome. I own you. And when you get to that crossroads, you gotta understand, you have to make a decision. And the decision is this Am I going to entrust my life to God? Or am I going to entrust my life to my boss, my company? But you gotta understand, when you say no to God and you say no to obedience, you're saying yes to the idols of security and recognition and progress. Now I want you to notice Daniel's response in verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times he got down on his knees and prayed. Look at this last phrase. Just as he had always done. Now let's be honest. A lot of us, we find ourselves in this situation, we would immediately go into, into some kind of justification mode. We would say, I want to pray, but the, the king tells me not to pray. But it's obvious that God has put me in this position for some kind of reason. I think he wants me to make a difference. I think God put me here so I could impact the kingdom. I think he wants me to be a light. And what good am I to the church if I lose my job? I can't continue to tithe. I can't continue to give all that money so we can drill wells in Africa and we can help out all the orphans. I'm just going to quietly pray with my eyes closed. In fact, I'm just going to keep them open. And no one will even know what I'm up to. Not Daniel. Verse 10 tells us he left his windows wide open, just as he always had. And he prayed three times a day, just as he always had. Now, was he just trying to be defiant? No. He had just decided at a young age that he belonged to God and he would not disobey God even for the sake of success or wealth or promotion or comfort or even security. Well, as you would expect, verse 11, these guys who came up with this, they've been keeping an eye on Daniel I'm sure they're in a building across the street on their binoculars, maybe a video camera set up, and they're watching what's going on. And sure enough, they catch Daniel praying. They run right back to the king and say, King, please refresh our memory. Didn't you say that anyone who prays to any other man, any other God other than you over the next 30 days, if they do, they're going in the lion's den. Isn't that what you signed in the law? And he said, that's exactly what I said. Well, we just happened to be walking the poodle down the street, and we looked up, and lo and behold, we saw Daniel praying. Three times a day. King, he is totally ignoring you. He has no respect for you whatsoever. So you'll notice verse 16. The king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Why would the king say that? Because the king has been impressed with Daniel. I think he loved Daniel. He respected Daniel. You know why? As we talked about last week, Daniel had become a light. I think Daniel had lived his life in such a way that over time the king would say, Daniel, explain to me, why are you the way you are? And he respected Daniel for his beliefs. And I think the last thing he wanted to do was to throw Daniel to the lions, but it was the law. So you read the story and you see that Daniel was put in the den and a a stone was placed over the mouth. And then verse 18, the king returned to his palace and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. Think about this, guys. No ESPN, no movies, no Xbox. I mean, and it says he could not sleep. He's tossing, he's worried about Daniel. And after a long night of no sleep, it says in verse 19, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, who I told you not to pray to, by the way, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's den? And you'll notice Daniel's response in verse 23. I'm good. I'm good just down here lying around, hanging out with the lions. My God sent his angel and he gave these, these, these lions a classic case of lockjaw. You know, I'm good, right? So the king gets him out in verse 23, and it says, There was no wound found on him. Why? Because he trusted God. And do you know what the king's response was? New rule. This rule was a stupid rule. And we're changing it. In fact, everybody that came up with this stupid rule is also stupid. In fact, according to verse 24, he went and got the guys who set Daniel up, and he threw them in the lion's den, along with their wives, along with their children tough king and it said that the lions just crushed him right verse 25 then king darius wrote to all the people nations and men of every language throughout the land i don't miss that that means that king darius passed a law that basically impacted the entire known world in regards to daniel's god verse 26 i issue the decree that in every part of my kingdom and people of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the god of daniel for he is the living god and he endures forever his kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel, look, suffered? Uh-uh. Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. He just kept right on climbing. Now the moral of the story is this. Your boss your CEO, your board of directors, they don't control the outcome of your life. They think they do. And I'm sure there are times from your perspective, it seems that they do, but you don't belong to them. As a Christian, you belong to God, and he is in control of your life. And this is what you need to understand. The very same God that intervened on Daniel's behalf is more than capable of intervening on your behalf. So let me just close by asking you a question. When it comes to your job, your career, do you believe you are where you are by God's goodness and by God's grace and by the opportunities that God has given you? Or do you think you are where you are and you've gotten to where you are because of your hard work, your education, your intelligence, your discipline? See, as followers of Jesus Christ, as Christians, at some point we have to make that decision. And if you come to this conclusion, and this is the right conclusion, that you are where you are, and you've gotten to where you are because of God, then here's the question you have to figure out how to answer for yourself. Do you think you have to compromise the principles of God to maintain the blessings of God? Now think about that. If you really... Believe that you are where you are because God put you there. Now, once you're there, do you think that you have to compromise the principles of God to maintain the blessings of God? See, this is the conclusion that that Daniel came to. He came to the conclusion: I'm not in this position because I'm such a good worker. I'm not in this position because I'm so intelligent. I'm not in this position because you know I'm such a good administrator. I'm where I am because at the age of 15, when King Nebuchadnezzar raided my hometown and invaded our city, God allowed me not to be killed. And on top of that, God allowed me to be hand-selected by the king out of all of those young people that were taken into captivity. On top of that, he kept me healthy when I, I wouldn't compromise on the whole diet issue, right? On top of that, you know, people saw my skills. And I got the opportunity to show the people around what I could do. And somehow that got back to King Nebuchadnezzar. You see, Daniel's like, God put me where I am. His fingerprints are all over my life, all over this situation. So why in the world would I violate the principles of God in order to maintain the blessing of God? And Daniel's like, that just makes no sense whatsoever. King Darius didn't give this to me, and King Darius can't take it away from me unless God allows him to, so I'm not going to abandon God now. After all, he's the one who got me here. Now, this is what's interesting. When we hear that, that sounds so right. And that's not a hard decision to make. That's not a hard conclusion to come to when you don't have a lot to lose. But when things are going great and you're climbing the ladder and the money is pouring in, And you're finally experiencing financial security and all of a sudden you're put in a position where do i obey the company or do i obey god on this issue i really want to obey god on this issue and you realize you have you realize you have a lot to lose at those times we're tempted to abandon god at those times we're tempted to abandon the one that we've been dancing with and find a new partner and all of a sudden we feel like hey we got to use our own human ability to manipulate to manipulate and negotiate to maintain what we have so we don't lose what we have. But see, this is what we learned from the life of Daniel. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's never, ever a reason to abandon the principles of God in order to maintain the blessings of God. I got this email. I wanted to share it with you. I asked them. They said it was okay. A few months ago, I was approached by my boss and asked to do something that I knew was unethical against company policy and against my belief as a Christian. I was put in a very awkward position. Do I go against my beliefs and do something I know to be wrong or do I put my career in jeopardy? I knew declining to do what I was asked would label me as not being, quote, a team player or a company man and could jeopardize my chances for promotions. Me and a few other team members were asked to perform a personal favor for a a high-level executive, quote, off the clock. We were told that our timesheets would be adjusted for the hours we worked at his home and we would also be paid an extra, quote, bonus in cash. Knowing that the only right thing to do was decline, I went to my boss and and politely explained that I felt I could not participate and told them that I appreciate the offer and if the executive needed work done at his home, I would be glad to assist with the project on my own time but not on company time. I was told my help was not needed. Things were never the same for me at work, and I was being treated notably different. I began looking for work elsewhere, knowing that my career at this company had gone as far as it could go, or so I thought. Shortly thereafter, God rewarded my faithful discipline and opened a door for me to move into a better position within the company. In my new role, I provide biblical study materials to schools and colleges and other institutions. God has blessed me with the opportunity to spread His word. I believe that before I could be put into this role, he needed to know that I could be trusted, and I am the Christian he has been grooming me to be. Doing the right thing is not always doing the easy thing. I've taken a pay cut, and I'm starting all over again in a new career, but I trust God, and I know that I am right where he needs me to be. You know, a few years ago, 19 years ago this Easter, it's when God began to lay on Laura and I, my, our hearts, to move here and, and to start this church. And I'll be honest with you, this is where we were living. <laughs> we had the house of our dreams. We were driving the cars of our dreams. We were taking the vacations of our dream. And we didn't do this. We did this. So much so that uh, I was kidding the other day with Gary Vett, one of our staff here. It was just three years ago that my salary here began to match what I was making 19 years ago. When I left my previous ministry. But as I was telling Laura. That just hit me. We laughed. Because it was almost as if God had just magically done something in our lives. Where we had never ever missed it. Where it was never ever a challenge. And we both agreed. We have never been more fulfilled in our lives. And we can't imagine. For, for all, we can't imagine at all. How we would have ever done anything any differently. And so this is the lesson that I've learned. You're obedient. And you do the right thing regardless of the cost. And what happens when you do that? Your faith and God's faithfulness, they intersect. And at that moment, God becomes real to you like never before. And I don't want you to miss that opportunity for anything in the world. Now, here's the problem. Some of you have already missed that opportunity numerous times. Because... You came to the crossroads and instead of yielding to God, you bowed down to security or recognition or the future or climbing forward and you missed it. Don't miss it again. Because you will never know what God is going to do in your life till you get to the crossroads and you decide you're going to be obedient and you do the right thing. You've missed it enough. Don't miss it again. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed, I don't know what God is doing in your life. But I know this there are things in life that are a lot more important than security, there are things that are a lot more important than recognition, promotions, and it's obedience. If you get nothing out of the six weeks that we've spent in this series other than this, my encouragement to you is learn to be obedient and trust God. And not just in your work life. This may be a principle that you need to apply to your marriage relationship. Our dating relationship, I loved how Celeste said, you know, we were having sex before we got married. And they realized that God said that was disobedient, and so they decided not to have sex before they got married anymore. For some of you, it may relate to your finances. For some of you, it may relate to your uh, willingness to serve or not to serve, because you don't think you have the time. When you come to that crossroad and God said, this is what I want you to do, are you willing to be obedient regardless of what the cost is, because you'll never know what it feels like to have God show up and intervene and do something miraculous in your life until you're willing to make that choice. Father, we thank you as you've led us on this journey about our jobs, our work, how important it is to you and how we should approach our job as if we're working for you and that how we do what we do is so much more important than what we do. Father, I pray that this has been a time where we've looked inside of ourselves and we've looked at our character. Maybe as an employee, maybe as an employer, maybe as a mom raising children, the impact that we have with our neighbors, the importance of truthfulness and integrity and honor. Father, I pray that our lives will be transformed through the power of your spirit because we've spent this time together Focusing on how you want us to live in a majority of how we spend our life, our work. And Father, may, maybe by the way we live, our light will so shine throughout this community that we will see it impacted and changed for your glory. And God, we're excited right now to see what you're going to do in the days to come. And we give you the glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.